Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 29, we are finishing today our series on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would bear fruit in our lives. God, I pray that you would wake us up to not just cry out, Lord, Lord, but to actually rest in you and to find life in your name. God, I pray that you would be glorified as we spend time in your word here this morning. It's for your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever known someone who never really shows you where you stand? And you always walk away from a conversation with them and you're like, I'm not sure if they really like me or if they really hate me. (laughs) Those kinds of people make us so uncomfortable because we really like to be known and we really like to be accepted. We really like to be well received. And it makes us really uncomfortable when we're not sure where we stand with someone. And I think that often when it comes to God, we do the exact opposite. Instead of wondering, like, okay, am I good with him? Am I his friend? We just kind of assume, like, oh, of course God loves me. Of course he does. Of course I'm a friend of God. Of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm good forever. Of course I'm going to go to heaven when I die. And Jesus' words to end the Sermon on the Mount challenge that assumption in our hearts. It acknowledges that while we all want to be liked and respected, not everyone will be accepted on the last day. And friends, what I want you to hear today is not a condescending judgment call that you will be turned away. What I want you to hear is a warm, welcoming invitation to come to Christ and to find rest for your weary souls. Friends, the world out there can exclude us and will all the day long. We will feel isolated and alone and excluded and judged by people out there. And Christ stands today ready to welcome you. He's radically different than anyone else you will ever know. Because as we will see from his word, he accepts you, not because of any good feeling that you grant to him, not because of any good service that you can bring to him, 
but out of the sheer goodness of his grace. Friends, I want you to know today that you can leave here today perfectly accepted by God in Christ. The true disciple trusts King Jesus to be changed forever. We've spent the last 17 weeks reading through and studying the Sermon on the Mount together. And here we are, we finally arrived at the end, and we've spent the last few months learning about the true people of the true king. In other words, if you want to know what a follower of Jesus' life is really supposed to look like, read the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus describes what it means to be his follower. And he ends the Sermon on the Mount here in the conclusion, asking the question, well, who are the true people of the true king? Who really will live the blessed life, not just in this world, but forever? And so here we are at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus will answer that question. In case you've missed it for the last 17 weeks, Jesus is saying, he comes here today and he says, this is who will get into the kingdom of heaven, the true people of the true king. And he starts by describing the false people of the true king. So how does Jesus answer that question? Who are the true people of the true king? He starts by saying not everyone are the true people of the true king. Verse 21, our passage begins, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This runs contrary to universalism which claims that everyone can be loved and accepted and known by God. Jesus stands against that popular narrative by saying, no, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he's not just making clear that it's, it's not everyone, but it's not even everyone who says, Lord, Lord. Because, friends, it's not enough to say the right things. Jesus goes on, verse 22, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Many will say, Lord, Lord. Friends, it's not enough to say the right things. Because at the end of the day, everyone can find something to like about Jesus, right? He was a radical teacher. He taught some incredible things. He was a brilliant philosopher, he, he was a, a, a teacher full of love and benevolence. He served the poor. He helped the downcast. He ate with the outcasts of society. He was an awesome guy. Everyone can find something to like about Jesus. But friends, it's not enough to be a fan of Jesus. It's not enough to respect and admire Jesus. It's not enough to say, Lord, Lord. It's not enough to just merely believe the truth claims about Christianity. So maybe you're really well-versed in the Bible. And maybe you say today, like, yeah, I know the Bible through and through. I'm okay. I'm good. I'm fine forever. But, but that's just saying, Lord, Lord. And it's not enough to just say the right things. It's not enough to just believe the truth claims of Christianity. In James chapter 2, James writes to his readers, and he says, you believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe that. Like, that's your, that's your bar. Like, okay, you've, you believe the right things. You've accepted the truth claims of Christianity. So has the devil. 
Good company, guys. Good company. It's not enough to just believe the truth claims of Christianity. And it's also not enough to just claim to be a Christian. We don't get to decide whether or not we're in the family. And many people will come and say, Lord, Lord, I'm one of the people. You're the king. I'm the subject. But that's not always true. And this runs contrary not just to universalism, but also to individualism. Many people believe that Christianity at its most basic level could be defined by a set of decisions that you make. A decision to follow Jesus, often expressed by an external action like walking an aisle or lifting a hand or signing a card or praying a prayer. None of those things make you a Christian friend. And often some of those things are just like saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things? Christianity is not primarily about a decision you make. And when we believe that it is, it completely distorts the way that we do evangelism. Because if Christianity is primarily about making a decision, then our evangelism is pressed towards getting people to take a specific action rather than bringing their, their entire selves to the Lord. This also affects the way that we find assurance for our own salvation. Because if Christianity is primarily about a decision that we make, then the way that we would find assurance is by looking into our past, whether or not we've made the right decisions and the right calls, or looking into our present day and, and questioning our own sincerity, whether or not we really have made that decision, whether we really have stuck with it. Well, friends, that's a horrible way to find assurance. Because that assurance isn't based on anything that God's done. It's based on something that you've done or something that you're doing. Christianity is not primarily about a decision you make. And so it will never be enough to say the right things. And at the same time, Christianity is not primarily about something you do. And so it will never be enough to do the right things. These people continue with their plea. They, imagine this is like a court case. And, and King Jesus is sitting on a throne on the judge's bench. And these people are coming forward, pleading, innocent. And they're, they're listing out all the evidence. Why? And they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? They've done some pretty impressive things, Right? They, they, they've, they've done some things that would make our eyes pop open and our jaws drop if we saw those things today. They've prophesied in the name of King Jesus. They've declared definitive words. They, maybe they were powerful preachers of God's word. They've cast out demons. They've shown their authority over spiritual things. They've done many mighty works in their name. Miracles have happened at their hands. These are some pretty impressive people, right? And what does Jesus say to them in verse 23? I never knew you. I never knew you. It's not enough to do the right things. Friends, your good works and your good deeds and your religious service and your private prayers and your Bible reading are all great things, but they will never be enough to earn your way into the kingdom of heaven because your sin is far too massive 
and pervasive. As we talked about a few weeks ago, our sin has infected every aspect of our nature. We have no hope of pleasing God in and of ourselves. Your works will never be enough because your sin is so massive. Resting in your works to get into the kingdom of heaven it is like a serial killer standing on trial and saying like, guys, I know I did this, all these crimes, but I also did a lot of good. Don't they kind of balance each other out? Like, yeah, you know, like I killed a bunch of people, but also like I volunteered at the orphanage and like fed them soup from the hand, from the palm of my hand. That would be kind of messy. I don't know why I would do that. Um, but, but that's foolish. It's foolish for a guilty person, a person who's actually guilty to say, no, look at all the good things that I've done. No, the only way to pay for our guilt is with a punishment. And by God's grace, a substitute has been punished in our place, friends. The, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is about the most astonishing, astounding story you will ever hear. Because it's a story about a king who was royally offended by a bunch of subjects. And instead of casting them out into exile, he runs after them with everything inside of him. That's the story of Christianity. King Jesus pursuing sinful rebels who have alienated themselves from the kingdom. King Jesus doing whatever it takes to bring those rebels back into the castle, into the palace, into the kingdom. And he took that love even to the cross where he died to pay for our sins. And he took that love into the ground where he really did die, friends. But that's not the end of the story because three days later he rose victoriously from the grave to prove to you that your sins can be forgiven if you trust in him. To prove to you that he's the king of the world. To prove to you that he has all power and all authority and all dominion. So come to him, friends. It's not enough to do the right things. Being a Christian is not primarily about something you do. As if we could ever, by our good deeds, add something to what Christ has done. And yet, so often that's how we live. So often we believe as if we can add things to God's work and God's grace and God's salvation. And that in and of itself also just leads to a lot of doubt and lack of assurance in our lives. Friends, being a Christian is not primarily about a decision that you make or a set of beliefs that you hold. And so it's never enough to say the right thing. And let me be clear that following Christ and making that decision and believing the truth about Christ, those are important things and non-negotiable things, and they cannot be left out, as we'll see later on in the passage. But at the most fundamental level, being a Christian is not primarily about a decision you make, and so it will never be enough to say the right things. And at the same time, being a Christian is not primarily about an action you do or a good deed that you render. 
And so it will never be enough to do the right things. So, well, that's encouraging. Everything is, everything is awful. Who are the true people of the true king? What is enough? What could we ever offer God? The only thing that's enough, friends, is to be known by the king. Look at verse 23. Jesus says, And then I will declare to them, so this is his response, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Such an interesting phrase there, workers of lawlessness. These people who have done all these mighty works, casting out demons, performing miracles, and Jesus says, you are not good workers, you're workers of lawlessness. Because all of our good deeds are worthless, because our hearts are so stained and corrupted by sin. The stakes are high, friends, aren't they? We've got to get this question right. Who are the true people of the true king? Why are the stakes high? Because Jesus will say to some people on the last day, depart from me. And why were they rejected? What does Jesus say? What, what evidence does he offer to prove that they're not his true people? It's not because their beliefs were wrong. It's not because their works weren't good. What does Jesus actually say? Verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. The difference, fundamentally, between a Christian and a non-Christian is not primarily something we decide, is not primarily something that we do. It is primarily someone who has known us. And this knowing that Jesus is talking about here, it's a personal knowing. It's a friendship. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and they say, do you know so-and-so? And you say, oh, I, I don't really know them. I know of them. I know of them, but I don't really know them. Jesus is not saying here that he never knew of these people who he turns away. He's saying he never really knew them. You see the difference? You see the difference? And, and I want you to notice, friends, who is it that does the knowing? I never knew you. A great Bible study tip, a, a great way to wring more truth and goodness out of your Bible is to look at the verbs and who does the actions. Who is it that's doing the things? And in this case, it's Christ himself who is doing the knowing. And so he's not saying, you didn't do enough to know me. Christ is saying here, I never knew you. It's Christ himself who does the knowing. And so our sins have made us his enemies. By his grace, by the blood of his son, he has drawn us back in. He has made us friends with him through his son. And so God says to you, if you are in Christ, I know you. I know you. Hear this from John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
Do you see how beautifully, closely, intimately, lovingly, tenderly Jesus describes you, his sheep? I know you. I love them so much I'm going to lay down my life for them. Jesus says, I know you. He knows you intellectually. He sees everything true about you. There's nothing you can hide from him. There's nowhere you could go. The secret sin that you are hiding that you think no one knows about, Christ knows about it. He sees it with perfect clarity. He knows you intellectually. And if you are in Christ, he knows you personally. He knows you personally if you are in Christ. Where even though he sees all of your mess and sin and knows it, he says, because of Christ, because of his cross, because of his resurrection, I know you not as an enemy, but as a friend. He knows every reason not to accept you, and he knows you as a friend anyway. And not arbitrarily, it's because of the blood and the resurrection of Christ that he knows that. And so who is in the kingdom? The people who are known and welcomed by the king. Isn't that great news, friends? You don't have to strive anymore. You don't have to work your hands down to the bone to please God. Because your works will never be enough. Your works will never be enough. And so he invites you today to find rest for your souls. So this all sounds great, but we need to remember those first two words in verse 21. Not everyone. Maybe that's been hanging over your head this whole time. You've been thinking to yourself, well, man, this sounds great to be accepted by God, not because I've said the right things, not because I've done the right things, but because God has known me. But how do I know that God has known me? Well, Jesus answers that question by telling a story. Verse 24. This is his grand conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, and it's awesome. Jesus, in addition to being the Messiah, the King of the, king of the world, the Savior of the church. He's also an awesome public speaker. And so he closes everything out with a story, as he often does. Verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not because it had been founded on the rock. Verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Both of these houses are very impressive on the outside. How do I know that? Because great was the fall of it. 
Just the aftermath, all of the mess and chaos that resulted from this house falling was massive. So these houses are both impressive constructions. They both look beautiful on the outside. What was the difference between the two houses? Their foundation. What they were building on. And Jesus says that houses are like hearers. Houses are like hearers. A wise hearer and a foolish hearer. And just as the houses only had one difference, their foundation, the hearers only have one difference, their response. What do they do with the word? The wise hearer builds his life on the foundation of God's word. And so he will stand on the last day. He will not be blown away because Christ has firmed him up by his word. The foolish hearer builds his house on the sand. He hears the word of God, but he doesn't do the word of God. And so as a result, his house blows away. And if you're building your life that way, on that rocky foundation, then your life will be blown away. So in other words, Jesus is describing... What, what it'll be like on the last day, on the day of judgment. And some people have a firm foundation because they haven't just heard the word of God, they've built their life on the word of God. Those people will stand on the day of judgment. Whereas there's another group of people who have heard the word of God, but they have not built their life upon the word of God. Maybe they've acknowledged the word of God, but they have not loved the Word of God. Maybe they've believed in their head, like, sure, maybe these things could have happened. But they have not trusted in Christ alone for salvation. They've heard the Word. They haven't built their life on the Word. And what happens to those people on the last day? They'll be blown away. They'll be wiped away forever. Friends, there is a coming judgment are you building your life on the Word? Is it the foundation of your life, or are you just hearing it? So, friends, don't be a foolish hearer. Don't be a foolish hearer. There's some people who, have, who, who come to church every week, and they hear the Word of God, and all that they're doing is heaping condemnation onto themselves because they're hearing the Word, and they're not doing the Word. They're hearing about Christ and they're not trusting Christ. If that's you today, wake up. Don't do it anymore. Christ is inviting you to himself. He's inviting you to himself. This is not a word of condemnation. This is not a word of condemnation. This is like a doctor looking at a sick patient who's sick because of their bad habits and said, dude, you can't do this anymore. If you keep living like this, if you keep eating like this, if you keep smoking like this, you're going to die. Stop it. Live a different way. Come to the water. Drink more water. Eat healthy food. Find life. 
That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying, you nimrods, I can't believe how foolish you are not building your life on my word. He's saying, come to me. The foundation is ready. It's laid. Hear the word of God. Build your life on the word of God. Trust the word of God. Do the word of God. Because how can you claim to trust Christ if you don't trust his word? Our belief is always shown in obedience. If, if we were going somewhere together, you, me and you, talking to you specifically, all of you, if we were going somewhere and I said, I really believe that you are a great driver. I really believe it. You are a great driver. I believe that. I'll meet you there. And I got my own car. I don't believe you. I'm not trusting you. I don't trust you. Belief is shown in obedience. If we say that we believe Christ, if we say that we trust Christ, but we don't trust his word, we don't do his word, how could we ever claim to really believe in him? Let me ask you three questions from the Sermon on the Mount to ask yourself this, to say, am I a wise builder building my life on the word of God or am I a foolish hearer merely hearing the word and not doing it? Is God's grace your only hope? What do you rest in? On the last day, if you stood before God right now, what would you say? Like, oh God, haven't I done many mighty works in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Performed miracles in your name? Prophesied in your name? Come to church in your name? Read my Bible really good? Prayed really good? Gave money to the homeless one time? Is that what you're resting in? Are you resting in your own goodness? Even more insidious, are you resting in your own sincerity? You say, oh man, I, God, I trust you. My heart is so good, so pure. I, I just, I love you, Jesus. You make me feel so good. You make me so happy. Is that what you're resting in? Or are you only resting in God's grace? Is God's grace your only hope? Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The way that we get into the kingdom is not... By, by pridefully weaseling our way in or saying, I'm good enough. But by saying, I'm poor in spirit. I've got nothing good to offer. Do you have space for a poor pilgrim like me? Is God's grace your only hope? Question number two, is God's word your top authority? So how do you decide right from wrong? Is it based on your own feelings, your own preferences, the voices around you, or is it based on the word of God? little into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Is God's word your top authority? How do you decide right from wrong? Is God's grace your only hope? Is God's word your top authority? And, and what do you do when people correct you with the word, or when the word corrects you, do you say like, ah, oh, that was just historical context, I'm sure the Greek says something different, whatever, and then you kind of throw it away? That's a foolish hearer right there. Is God's grace your only hope? Is God's word your top authority? Is God's glory your top priority? What are you living for, friends? Are you living for your own comfort or God's fame? For God's glory 
Remember in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, we spent several weeks studying it together? Similar to these two houses, both impressive on the outside, Matthew chapter 6 describes two kinds of prayers and two kinds of givers and two kinds of fasters. Some of them look really impressive on the outside, but on the inside they're only trying to please God, or they're only trying to please man. And some of them don't look like anything on the outside because they pray and give and fast in private. And those people, God says, are the really beautiful ones, the ones that he accepts. And he ends all of that by saying, don't try to impress other people. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Friends, don't worry about what people think about you. Worry about pleasing God. Worry about spreading God's fame. Worry about what people think about God, not about yourself. Is God's grace your only hope? Is God's word your top priority? Is God's glory your top, pri- your top priority? And the true people of the true king don't answer those questions perfectly. Like, yes, I have always obeyed the Bible perfectly, 100%. I'm great with that. I've always seek God's glory. But this is the goal of the true Christian, of the true disciple. It's to be increasingly conformed to these things. Let me say, you can ask these three questions to somebody that you meet. If you meet a Christian or somebody who professes to be a Christian, you can ask him these questions. Is God's grace your only hope? Is God's word your top authority? Is God's glory your top priority? You can use these questions in evangelism, friends, so that when somebody says to you, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I'm fine, you don't say like, okay, good, go ahead. That's fine. Move along. Ask them what they mean by that. Because many will say, Lord, Lord, and will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And let me also say about these things, assurance is a community project. It's something that we're supposed to do together, friends. We're supposed to be known by other people so that other people can look at you and say, yeah, I've seen it in your life. I've seen that you're not comfortable with your sin because God's word is your top priority, your top authority. I've seen you rest in God's grace. Or if you're known and living in an intentional, intimate community, then people can say, you're prideful. You're not resting in God's grace. Or, or you've seen the word of God and thrown it out the window so many times this week. That's not right. Assurance is meant to be a community project, friends, so be known. Sign up for a small group in the back of the room before you leave today. That's a group of people who will do this for you, who will know you, who will ask those three questions about your own life, not to judge you, but to help you. And if you're not a part of a church and you're a Christian, don't be alone anymore. We have a membership class next weekend. You can sign up for it at PillarDC.com slash membership. You can get more deeply involved in the life of our church. You can become a part of a family who will care for you, take care of you. This is a community project. And let me just say, I hope that some of you are realizing that you've been a foolish hearer, that you've heard the Word of God, and you haven't built your life on the Word of God. God's grace is not your only hope. 
God's word is not your top authority. God's word is, God's glory is not your top priority. You've lived for yourself. You've rested in yourself. Or maybe you've rested in some sort of gross blend of me plus Jesus. And maybe you've thought, like, I'll get, like, maybe, like, 50% of the way there, and then Jesus will, like, scoop me up to heaven or whatever. Maybe you think, like, I live for God's glory, like, half the time, but the other half of the time, I really need my me time. Maybe that's how you live. Maybe you think, well, I'll, I'll accept God's word, but that passage about marriage or about how I should talk or about how I should treat my spouse or about how I should treat my neighbors or about how I should treat my employer. Like, oh, I don't care about that passage. I don't, I don't need that. Friends, that's foolish. I hope that you're feeling that today. I hope that you're seeing how foolish it is that even though you're hearing the word of God, you're not building your life upon the word of God. And friends, Jesus' invitation to you today is to come to him, to not just come to church, but to come to him, to find life in his name. Friends, because it's, it's Christ who is the firm foundation. Christ who is the Word of God, who we can build our lives on. You know that that's what Jesus described himself as again and again? He said, I'm the Word of God. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In John chapter 1, 14, a few verses down, and the word took on flesh and dwelt among us. It's talking about Christ. Why is Christ called the word of God? Because he perfectly reveals God's character to us. He perfectly reveals God's goodness to us. He perfectly reveals God's nature to us. He perfectly reveals God's glory to us. And so if you want to build your life upon the word of God, then start with Jesus and look to Jesus who said in John chapter 6, verse 29, to believe in the Son is the work of God. Jesus' disciples, or the crowds in John chapter 6, were asking, like, we want to do the works of God. How do I do that? Where do I sign up? Is there like an iPad in the back of the room I could sign up for to do the works of God? And Jesus said, John 6, 29, this is the work of God, to believe in the Son. To believe in the Son. So friends... If you're realizing today that you're not a Christian, that's really great news. I mean, it's bad news right now, but it could be good news by this afternoon because you could become one. Jesus is saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount with this bold declaration. Kind sound sounds kind of crazy. He says, if you come to me, you will live forever because I'm God and I have all authority. It sounds absolutely bananas. If somebody said that here in this room today, that if, if I said, hey, if you just come to my house, then you will live forever, you would think that I am crazy and you would never come back to this church again. And you would be right to do so because I don't have that kind of authority. And even though Jesus makes all of these crazy claims, he's not a crazy person because he actually does have this authority, friends. He does have this authority to say, come to me and live forever. And that's how the crowds responded to the message. Their jaws dropped. Verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. 
For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The scribes were experts in the scripture. They knew the word of God backwards and forwards. Jesus does not merely know the word of God. He is the word of God. And so he has more authority than the scribes. The scribes were teachers of the law. Jesus himself is the lawgiver. That's how he reveals himself again and again in the Sermon on the Mount. As a true and better Moses who's able to give the word of God with perfect clarity and able to change your heart so that you're actually able to do the word of God. He's the lawgiver. So friends, are you the true people of the true king? Christianity is not primarily about a decision that you make, and so it will never be enough to merely say the right things. Christianity is not primarily about an action that you do, and so it will never be enough to merely do the right things. The only thing that's enough is to be known by the king, to be known by the king who calls you to himself by grace. And how do we know if we are there, if we are known by the king? Well, has he changed your life? Is God's grace your only hope? Is his word your top authority? Is his glory your top priority? There's three possible answers to that question. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. There's three possible answers to that question. Yes, no, or maybe. And if your answer is yes, then we say praise God. Walk in assurance, friends. Jesus doesn't want you full of worry and anxiety here today. He wants you full of hope and rest. Maybe your answer is no. I'm not a Christian today. God's word is not my top authority. God's glory is not my top priority. God's grace is not my only hope. And friends, I don't care who you are. If you're saying today, no, I'm not a Christian. This is not my life. I'm not building my life on King Jesus. And so I know it's going to be blown away on the last day. If that's you today, don't hide in self-righteousness. Come and talk to someone. We're going to have some prayer counselors in the back of the room. We would love to pray with you to ask God to change your heart. Why would you let anything hold you back today? Go to the back of the room as we sing the last song. And if you're saying, maybe, I'm not sure, then come to the back of the room today during the last song, and we'll pray with you. We'll ask God to give you clarity. And we'll also connect you with a disciple maker, someone who can meet up with you and look at the Word of God and observe your life and say, friend, look to Jesus, and you can find life in His name. We're going to have prayer counselors in the back of the room to do that. But friends, what I want you to know today is that Christianity is not primarily about a decision that you make. And so it will never be enough to say the right things. Lord, Lord. Christianity is not primarily about an action that you do. And so it will never be enough to do the right things. Didn't we do many mighty works in your name? Christianity is about being known by the king, the king who left everything behind to love and to seek after you.
What a glorious, scandalous love. Available, open to you today, friends. And so if you're a Christian today, friends, I want you to rest in that. My top hope for our gatherings together is that when you come in here from all of the heat out there in the world, you would be refreshed by the cool water of God's kindness to you. Friends, rest in his name.